This is an ABC podcast. Have you ever wanted to change your personality? Maybe you want to be more hardworking or open to new experiences or more assertive. You might think that our character traits are fairly fixed. Perhaps there's some change in your younger years, but after that, things are pretty much set. Most people who are not researchers believe that personality is the most difficult thing to change in their psychological makeup. But that's not what the evidence is saying. I think the research over the last 10, 20 years has really started to challenge that a little bit uh, because there is accumulative evidence that, you know, we are perhaps not as fixed as we had imagined. The changes that we found have been much more dramatic than we expected. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, we unpack the growing body of research on personality and whether you can change it. Here's producer James Bullen. Erin is a substance abuse therapist and counsellor from Dallas, Texas. These days, she's fairly extroverted. When she feels like she's around the right people, she's outgoing, social and friendly. But it wasn't always this way. I was raised fundamentalist, Baptist, Christian, homeschooled. So basically, as I was growing up, I was introverted by environment or introverted by necessity, but it also... The environment I grew up in was, I mean, it wasn't the worst, but it did have, I don't know, there were some issues, and I've been working through some of the trauma responses I still have from growing up in that restricted of an environment. But I also learned early on that being alone was when I was safe, because if I could sort of get away what was going on in the home environment and sort of just go you know, isolate myself in my room and sort of lose myself in books and these fantasy worlds and the internet, when I got access to the internet in my early teens, that was my safe place. A typical day for Erin would be pretty solitary. I would get up, go downstairs, have breakfast, usually had like my headphones in or I was reading a book then and always sort of being in my own little world. And then I was homeschooled again, so I just kind of go upstairs and work through a lot of the material by myself. And in the classical way we think about introversion, social interactions could leave Erin feeling exhausted. I would just feel very tired and drained and would retreat back into my room to uh, replenish my energy stores, as it were. But that all changed when Erin graduated from community college in the States and went away to university. Because again, I went from being mostly homeschooled and kind of always having a place that I could go back to and be alone, which was my own room, or to university. So I was in a dorm room that I shared with a couple people. I had a partner at the time and we were always together. So even if even if I was alone, I would usually be alone with my partner. That kind of forced Erin to put herself out there. And she realised she enjoyed this. So university, I think I started to open up more. So I got involved with some of the like gaming clubs and D&D clubs and some of the nerdier aspects of college, and I really enjoyed that. So I started to branch out, but I'd still say at this point I was mostly introverted. But I could feel myself getting more comfortable socially and adjusting more to like societal expectations and also just feeling I was around people who felt more like my people, I suppose. I think my partner definitely noticed 
because of the two of us, he was the more introverted. So I would notice that I would want to go out and I would want to go do more things and he would want to stay behind. So I started to notice that I was drifting more in the direction of being extroverted and wanting to be involved in activities and different clubs and different, like going to fencing competitions and whatnot. And he mostly wanted to stay behind or stay home. So I started to notice, at least in comparison to that, that I was definitely getting more extroverted where we started at the same level of extroversion when we first moved to university. So Erin became more extroverted over time. But what does that actually mean? The gold standard of personality measurement is the Big Five personality test, which we've talked about on All in the Mind in the past. Personality traits are the patterns that we exhibit when we don't think about things. And they tend to fall into five large categories that we organize them by. Brent Roberts is a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois. He's a leading figure into work on personality change. And here, he's walking us through the traits that make up the big five. Extroversion versus introversion, so whether you tend to be sociable and outgoing versus shy and introverted, agreeable versus disagreeable, it's the second category, and that's whether you tend to be kind and generous to others, or let's say cold and aloof on the opposite end, and then conscientiousness, which is the domain that I study the most. And uh, on the high end, that's uh, hardworking and organized. On the low end, that's disorganized, maybe irresponsible. Impulsive is another term used to describe those folks. The fourth domain is emotional stability. On the high end, that's being calm and resilient in the face of difficulties. And on the lower end, being anxious and nervous and maybe oppressed and worrying. And then the final domain is openness to experience. And that's being open-minded, creative, intellectual and orientation. Somebody likes to think about ideas. And on the lower end, being more concrete. Though we know these as the big five, Brent Roberts says there is some evidence of a sixth personality trait too. The sixth category has been described roughly as honesty and humility, and it wasn't discovered in the United States, which has always hit my funny bone. And especially after the last few years of our political spectrum, it's it's remarkable um, <laughs> and seems fitting that we did not discover the existence of, of honesty. And it was something that came up in, in many other countries. And in other countries, you find honesty popping out a little bit more regularly than you did in the United States. It does seem that if you do a really exhaustive survey of these types of qualities across different countries, honesty does come up enough to be able to say, hey, we should probably consider that a possibility. One of the reasons researchers have been so interested in working out whether someone's more open or conscientious than others is how those traits might link to someone's life journey, how they do at work, whether they're a dependable partner and their health. We've done a lot of work in the last few decades, and we're mapping things out as assiduously as possible. On the neuroticism front or the emotional stability front, like I alluded to earlier, it's pretty straightforward. Those of us who, uh, let's say, are a little more elevated on neuroticism, on the negative end of it, will suffer more of the forms of psychopathology and mental health issues that the clinicians are so busy trying to treat and to try to, to figure out. And so if, if you are anxious and you are nervous more than others, you're going to experience things like depression and panic attacks and the like more often than others. It's not a, you know, a guarantee. It's a relationship. It's not a perfect relationship. It just says that you're, you're, the probability of that happening is, is going to increase. Those who are high on in conscientiousness, we know, for example, end up 
benefiting seemingly in many different ways because of that. So they tend to do better in achievement settings in school and in work. So they get better grades. They tend to be rated higher on job performance by their supervisors. They also do a little bit better in relationships. If you define doing better in relationships by having a stable and satisfying relationship, if you want to have a lot of relationships, it's not good to be high on conscientiousness <laughs> if that's your goal. Of course, the outcome does depend in some ways on how you define success. And then conscientious people also do better in terms of health and longevity. And so they tend to lead healthier lives. They participate in fewer of the, let's say, less than healthy behaviors that we know lead to problematic outcomes for people, the degenerative diseases like heart disease and cancer that result from things like smoking and drinking too much and not exercising. The conscientious people tend to do the things that society says you should do, and they tend to benefit from that by having healthier years in their life, and they tend to live longer too. Each of the big five traits have these sorts of associations, but two in particular seem to be a bit more influential. Conscientiousness and emotional stability are, in my perspective, the big two in the sense that they really do relate to more things that we care about as societies and individuals than the other categories of the big five. This is not to say that extroversion and agreeableness and openness aren't important. You know, openness, for example, is incredibly important for creativity and creative outcomes and uh, things like scientific creativity. If you, you know, really want somebody who's going to produce cutting edge science, it's really quite advantageous for them to be open and to consider and dwell in ideas and like to play with ideas because that tends to lead to the types of outcomes that benefit science and then society. So can we change these personality traits? When asked, many people say that they're keen to change some aspect of their personality, often how extroverted or agreeable they are. And there might even be health benefits that come with tweaking your personality. But the field of psychology has really gone back and forth over time on whether or not it's even possible for personality to be changed. Pre-1960, when psychology was dominated by these big paradigms like the behaviorists and the psychoanalysts and, and the like, it was actually interesting. At that point, there, it was pretty widely accepted, at least by most psychologists, that personality was something that changed. The psychoanalysts were a little weird. They might still be, actually. Um, but they, you know, they had the opinion that personality was set by the time you were five when you resolved your Oedipal complex. Now, the entire field dropped that <laughs> paradigm, so we don't really consider it anymore. And then we, we kind of went to a, a different extreme for a while in the 60s and 70s, where the whole idea of personality, and especially personality traits, was anathema. I mean, this you know, it, it kind of railed against the positive, hopeful picture of behaviorism where take any child and you can make them into whatever you want because they're a tabula rasa. You know, that turned out also to be wrong. And then you, the pendulum swung to some of my colleagues back in the 80s and 90s where they said, you know, personality is fixed like plaster. Now they put the date for that later in the life course around age 30. So there's still a developmental period in childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood and their, and their ideas. But then they said, yeah, once you get to about 30, you're fixed. That picture started to change when scientists began recording long-term data on people. Think two or three decades of information about their lives and personalities. 
since that time, we've been blessed uh, with a lot of longitudinal data. There's a quirk of history that between investments made by countries, especially in Europe or New Zealand um, or Australia, the Hilda study, for example, in Australia is a nice example of, of a public good that happens when countries say, yeah, we should probably do some assessments of our people. And many of those studies included personality measures and personality trait measures. And because of that, we've we've just gotten oodles of data. And so we, our, our perspective is, I think, ground much more in good, strong empirical evidence at this stage. And the picture is less exciting because it's less extreme in the sense that, you know, it's fun to contemplate the possibility that personality doesn't exist. It's also fun to say your, your personality is stuck by the time you're five because of your edible complex, neither one of which is true. And the empirical story is, is a middle story, a middle way of sorts, where I think the lay perception of personality being fixed is enough right um, that you know they don't get that contradicted as much as they might. But the idea that personality doesn't change and doesn't develop is clearly wrong in the sense that we see really incremental positive changes in personality traits in particular across the life course, starting usually in adolescence or late adolescence, happening mostly in that transition to young adulthood, but also continuing into middle age and sometimes even in old age. Typically, people become more emotionally stable, agreeable and conscientious over time. Much of this personality change is tied up in environment, life events like whether you have a partner or a family. When it comes to the research we've done, we've done a lot of studies where we've tracked people over time and tracked their experiences to try to figure out whether the experiences are correlated with the changes that we see, and they are. And so we have seen reproducible patterns such as you know, initiating significant relationships in your young adulthood are associated with becoming less neurotic and becoming more conscientious, for example. And just that, you know, attaching yourself to another person, having another person who cares about you and is there for you and, and that having that last for time seems to be something associated with the kind of positive personality changes that we see. Work experiences are the same in the sense that attaching yourself to a job, making progress in the job on you know, whatever achievement or status hierarchy that you feel is important is also associated with the same types of changes, especially with neuroticism and conscientiousness. Being invested in your career, dedicating yourself to the job itself is also associated with increases in conscientiousness. So we, we we find these experiences, especially in love and work, are associated with, with a lot of the positive changes that we see in personality, especially in young adulthood. Now, what's interesting is we actually find the same type of pattern, even in middle age and old age, but the changes are happening less often and they might be transitory. So you, know, you take um, something like retirement, for example. There's a really beautiful study done recently um, by Ted Schwab where they found right at the transition to retirement, people increased pretty dramatically on openness. They're just looking at all these different things. And then they started the downward trend again. <laughs> they started decreasing after that. Yeah, yeah. So not, not the most hopeful story that you want, but nonetheless, you know, it, it invites the perspective that, well, even with somebody who's advanced in the life course, they can show the same types of change. We think that the probability, of course, of those types of environmental factors and those, those role changes that you happen to have in life happen less often. For Erin, this is what drove her slide along the scale from introversion to extroversion as a young adult. I mean, there was an environment change, and so I started... It was just, I don't know, it was hard not to... It's like there wasn't much of an option to continue to be as introverted as I had been 
but then as I did get more involved in some of the social scenes, I did notice that I enjoyed it more than I thought I did. So it's like at first it was out of necessity, but then as I got more involved, it became more, the process became more enjoyable. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. And today, how much power we have over our personality and whether it's possible to change what many see as our fundamental character traits. Here's producer James Bullen again. So we can see from this long-term data that personality does change naturally, at least over extended periods of time. The next step for Brent Roberts and other personality psychology researchers was, can these traits be deliberately changed? We had lots of fits and starts in trying to figure out how to do this. And one of the unforeseen opportunities came about when we started digging into the clinical literature. And my, my clinical colleagues are phenomenal methodologists when it comes to evaluating whether their efforts work. And so the practice in clinical psychology is to be brutally comprehensive when you assess the functioning of your clients when they go into therapy. And it just so happened that a lot of them included personality trait measures. They didn't make much of it. So they would report their study and they'd say, here's my you know, new version of depression treatment. Look, it, it fixed depression. Isn't this great? And oh, by the way, there's that trait measure over there and it worked too. <laughs> and so we really didn't know that all this data had been lodged in their, their publications for years until we started um, digging into it. And then it was kind of, a, it was like being a, an archaeologist. We were you know, digging through all their different literatures, finding all the, these studies. It was quite fun. And the, the resulting meta-analysis had over 200 studies and showed that if you went to see a therapist, you improved on neuroticism a tremendous amount by our standards. So when we look across a life course, be stats and nerdy, and I apologize for this. Yeah, we see naturally speaking that people become more emotionally stable with age. And the change is about a half a standard deviation to a full standard deviation, depending upon what you look at. That's a big effect size by our standards. And when we did the meta-analysis, it turned out that seeing a therapist resulted in a change that was a half a standard deviation. So that's roughly equivalent to a half a lifetime, <laughs> right? depending upon what kind of scale you use. And we were, we were stunned by that. I mean, we thought we'd find something, but we didn't think it'd be that. The other thing that surprised them was how fast the change occurred. And if you look at the therapeutic process, most therapies, at least in the Western world, and especially in the United States, because of our wonderful lack of uh, public health care system, lasts only a few sessions because that's that's the only thing that the, the insurance companies will reimburse. And so you go out about four to 12 weeks total when it comes to most therapy. And the fact of the matter is the change was occurring within that time frame. And that was really surprising. And that, that really changed our perspective a lot because, of course, we've been looking at these passive longitudinal studies and the picture that emerged there was kind of modest, right? You have incremental small amounts of change that happen over you know, a decade. And at a population level, that seems to be true. But then if you look at these interventions, you're getting a half a standard deviation in six weeks. And that's remarkable. And I didn't believe it, to be honest with you. So Brent Roberts and others set out to test the possibility of change, mostly through the development of apps that could help coach people to tweak their personality traits over a period of time. We've done a bunch of studies in the subsequent years since 2017, and those have shown 
quite impressively that, yeah, if you really want to change your personality, you can. It's going to take some investment. I call it the Duolingo model of, <laughs> or the you know, whatever language app you might use, you know, where you really have to dedicate yourself to the process and you have to commit and you have to do things every day and you have to practice at it. And if you do so, we see you know, reasonable amounts of personality change, even in populations that aren't suffering from a clinical disorder. And so this has really thrown us for a bit of a loop. We're trying to figure out and digest it now. And we're starting to do follow-up studies to figure out how this integrates with the picture that we had before, which was a much more modest and conservative type of, of, a, of a conclusion in some respects. He says the process is fairly similar to cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's where you, know, you work with how you perceive the world and how you construe it. And so you know, for an introvert, for example, the social world can be a, a very frightening place. It causes you know, a lot of anxiety. What can you do to diminish the anxiety you feel and in going into a social setting? So that's practice some of the things that would help there. And then actually doing the behaviors that are related to the construct that you would like to change in ways that are, let's say, moving you in the direction you would like to go. And so, you know, for the introvert trying to become extrovert, you know, getting yourself into social settings, learning how to introduce yourself and to practice some small talk. You know, these are the types of things that you would practice like your Duolingo app for language, but for interpersonal behavior, so to speak. And th this is n nothing dramatically different than what we already do in many settings already to help people improve in whatever it might be that we want them to, to get better at more often in, in clinical settings to do things like let's you know help you with your impulse control disorder or with your you know anxiety and they work on how you think about things and they work on how you interact with the world and then you're guided through that. One caveat is you're unlikely to make a complete personality 180. If you're truly an off-the-scale introvert, shifting the dial a few points seems possible, but becoming the life of every party is much less likely. Here in Australia, researchers have also been looking into personality change, but it's a particular area they're most interested in, work, especially insecure work. Job insecurity, unlike unemployment, is more of a subjective perception. Uh, so unemployment more refers to the objective reality, you know, we lost our job. But job insecurity is that kind of constant feeling and worry about we might lose our job, so the potential risk of it. And that in itself is also a very distressing experience, especially if we keep thinking about it over a long period of time. It's actually really bad for our mental health as well. Dr. Lena Wong is a senior lecturer at the School of Management at RMIT University. So in order to understand people's personality change, we have to have longitudinal data. And fortunately, we have this wonderful database in Australia, which is called HILDA. So it's a household level very large database collected by the Melbourne Institute. The Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia survey gathers information on all sorts of things, education, work, health. It's a valuable data set used in a lot of Australian research. So in our study, we used the HILDA and we focused on nine years of data from this database. So we tracked those individuals who stayed in the database for nine years and we had their personality data about every four years, and we had their annual report of their job insecurity. So that allowed us to really put these two things together and look at you know, how 
did job insecurity changes people's personality over time? The personality information collected was Big Five data, and the job insecurity was chronic. Multiple short-term contracts, casual work or unstable industries experienced over years. We found that chronic job insecurity was associated with employees' personality change in a number of the Big Five indicators, and the change was actually in a negative fashion, as we expected. So people's neuroticism increased, which means that they became less emotionally stable over time because of job insecurity. They also became less agreeable. And that is the indicator, personality indicator, suggesting how cooperative, helpful, sympathetic we are in relating to others. So that also decreased. And we further found, you know, there was a negative association between chronic job insecurity and people's conscientiousness. And that is a trait that regulates people's ability to focus on our goals, achieving our goals effectively, and that appear to have been disrupted as well. This disruption, this insecurity, interrupts a typical process, the personality change we all tend to go through as we get older that Brent Roberts talked about earlier. But for people who are facing insecure work, there are things that can be done to prevent the worst negative effects, both individually and at a systems level. There is this concept we also research on, which is called proactivity. And there is this idea of proactive career behaviours. So, for instance, people could be proactively going out to get to know people, network, building your social capital. And people could also looking for ways to improve their knowledge and skills and make them more employable in the labour market. So there are a lot of things we as individuals can do to alleviate the potential impact of job insecurity on us. But I think, yeah, job insecurity is also something that we shouldn't only, you know, put full responsibility on individuals uh, because there are, there are roles to be played by the government, by the organisations collectively. There are structural changes required to, you know, mitigate the precarious nature of work. We know we can change personality traits now, at least to some degree. And there might be a case for doing so when it comes to things like health. Still, should we? It's an ethically complex situation. And I don't think there's a simple answer to it. And you've got you know, horror stories on multiple sides, right? There's a lot of work, for example, in the education sphere you know, with appropriate conclusions that, hey, the technical skills that we obsess over in our education systems are great. But, you know, if you can't show up to work and you get in fights with your boss and you can't work in a team and you fall to pieces every time something stressful happens, you can't employ those amazing skills that our education system gives you. And so educational systems are like, well, you know, we should look at soft skills or what I like to call them essential skills. What are the essential skills? Oh, the big five, <laughs> you know, in, in, in a cursory way, right? And those are skills that could be taught by educational systems. And the reason they want to teach them is because they know that those also predict success in all these different areas. And, you know, the fear there is, especially in the United States, the, the helicopter parent who's, you know, training junior to acquire all those soft skills in addition to playing the cello and doing the sport and going to the best prep schools and obsessing over maximizing their potential to get into Harvard. And I think that's a legitimate fear. You know, those folks 
don't need help. That's not what I think any of us want um, as a kind of competition or battle to improve people's personalities by parents with, with their kids. On the flip side, you have the folks who, for example, suffer from disorders like you know substance use disorders impulse control disorders and or even you know depression and, and other forms of psychopathology those folks know that they're not always depressed for example but they fall into depression a lot and it's really really painful and if they could do something to help themselves changing their personality would be one of those solutions I think we, we, as societies, need to discuss these things um, and figure out how to approach the topics in ways that are helpful and constructive, especially when it comes to these different populations and people who are in distress, for example. For Erin, her journey towards extroversion has led to lasting change. During the week, I'm a therapist, so I do individual sessions, and then I also run groups for nine hours a week. So I'm constantly, at this point, I'm constantly surrounded by and responsible for people in my tribe, but I feel it's much more balanced now. I've been wondering if maybe I have always been a bit more naturally extroverted and I just need to find the right people or if there's just a, it's almost like a muscle that you can exercise. Just the more that you use it and the more you get used to exercising those social skills, the less taxing they become. That's Aaron ending that story from producer James Bullen. You also heard from Professor Brent Roberts at the University of Illinois and Dr. Lena Wong from RMIT University. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our sound engineer was John Jacobs. I'm Sana Kadar, and I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.